Welcome to More Than Amused Podcast, a podcast all about women and the arts, hosted by Stani and Sadie. Join us as we explore what it's like being a female artist, examine modern day problems, and educate ourselves and you on important and forgotten female artists of the past. Hello, welcome to More Than Amused Podcast. I'm Sadie. I'm Stani, and welcome back. I have to say, like, I feel a little bit sad that October is over. Yes, October was very fun. It was. I'm like, oh, we don't have a theme for this month. It's mm-hmm. just it's just November. But <laughs> Just another month of lost women artists that we're talking about, which is always a good thing. It's always That's a good true. month to mm-hmm. talk about forgotten, underloved women artists. But I agree. Agreed. I'm missing the themes of October. <laughs> I know. However, like... The research for this episode was really cool. Actually, I feel like Mm. I learned like a lot. So I'm excited. Um, We're talking about Elizabeth Marie Tallchief, which Mm. I had never heard of. Had you? I don't know who that is. No. Yeah, she is a ballerina. She actually was considered America's first major prima ballerina. Mm -hmm. And she was the first Native American to hold the rank and is said to have revolutionized ballet. So very like key player in the early American ballet scene, like lots of interesting backstory there. Really excited to talk about her. I'm excited to hear and learn about her. I did want to mention that last night I went and saw Priscilla, (gasps) which is the new movie about, well, about Elvis, kind of, but mostly about Priscilla Presley, who is the girl girl slash woman that he eventually married had a child with i've been so excited for this movie we have an episode um about the women behind elvis where we talk about priscilla and of course a lot of the other women that it were was in his so eye-opening like yes it really was yeah that's one of um, my things when people are like what did you learn about the podcast i'm like well um did you know that elvis was like a pedophile and they're like wait what like was it the worst <laughs> yeah like yeah. literally the worst so the movie was really really good if you ever see it the ending in my opinion was a little weird i don't want to mm. like necessarily spoil it but i think that the way they ended it it felt a little anticlimactic. I was hoping for a little bit more of an emotional payoff than they gave me. But the beginning and the middle, like it was really, really good. And they set it up really, I mean, they set it up really nicely as well. I mean, nicely in the sense of it wasn't a nice thing that was happening. But um, anyways, I've read the memoir. And after the movie, I honestly felt frustrated because I felt like they could have condemned Elvis maybe even more Mm. but I went with my husband and he like I mean he knows the research we did for the episode I think he might have even listened to that episode that we did and also I've talked to him about the memoir so he he knows everything yeah about like my opinions on it but after that movie he was like are you kidding me like I hate Elvis now like he's disgusting. So I think the movie worked so even though from my perspective I was like oh they could have gone in so much harder it worked like they I did a really good job and I'm not saying the purpose of the movie was to like make people hate Elvis but I think that it just showed the darker sides and yeah and by really capitalizing on Priscilla and her experience and something that I thought the movie did really really well is like I think an argument could be made against that movie of like oh nothing really happened there was just like a lot of clips of her just kind of like being alone or being in his room with her. And sure, like it was in some ways 
boring, but that's because that was what Priscilla's existence was. You know, it was just sitting alone in the empty house, sitting in the room with Elvis. And so I think it did a really amazing job at really showcasing like what her real life experience was. Yeah. And so if you feel like it's boring, if you feel like unfulfilled by it, it's like, well, that's the point because that's yeah. what she was feeling too. Her and life so- was boring and unfulfilled. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I really, really loved it. It was like I said, it, I feel like they the ending maybe could have stuck a little like better in the sense that I was like, oh, the movie's over. Like it just yeah. it happened a little suddenly, but it was really good, and I think they did a really good job. I know I know Priscilla Presley was a part of the movie as well. As, I think she was an executive producer on it, which is really cool. That is cool. Um, no, I that's great. She's also, a controversial character to some people. Some people hate her. Sure, maybe she's a flawed woman. I love that memoir. It was so amazing for me to read as an 18, 19 year old. I was very inspired by it. I wrote a song based off of yes, the memoir. Yes, right. So like, I love that book. I was so stoked that that story was being told and I would absolutely recommend the movie and would love to hear anyone's thoughts out there who has yeah. seen it this weekend. So. I'm excited to watch it. I've been a little annoyed by the press coverage on it because I feel like after the huge, like glamorous... Mm-hmm. production that they had with the whole Austin Butler situation. It's been a little annoying to see kind of like it not converting over to Priscilla. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also like I sent you this, they talked about how Lisa Marie Presley slammed the script as vengeful and contemptuous for its Elvis depiction when it's like, well, maybe it's accurate. And like, yeah. Maybe that's and, just a hard thing to come to terms with. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can be very, you know, sympathetic to it where it's like, that's her dad. So yeah. I understand that like, that would be a hard thing to read and watch. Also like rest in peace, Lisa Marie. But I mean, it is, it's her mom's experience and her mom mm-hmm. was a part of that. And I don't know, like I said, I don't even necessarily feel like they were that damning to Elvis. I mean, they were in the ways that they like showed how young she was and they also showed all the ways that the adults around her failed her in the ways yeah. that they should have been there to protect her it's and, truly um, shocking like what her parents allowed him to get away with with like it yeah. yeah i mean it's not and like it's hard to like point the blame like whose fault is it you know but i think it did a really good job at saying this wasn't priscilla's fault because she was a 13 year old girl when this all started so I think that they really did that really well and that was the main focus was them meeting and then eventually getting married after the marriage that's when they like kind of quickly wrap it up but I think that was the point of the movie was to like show like hey this is weird (laughs) like this whole beginning of this relationship is what the main problem is so here here's what happened and you get to decide kind of for yourself what you what you make of that so gosh man i another thing though i want to shout out about the whole priscilla movie it is directed by sofia coppola Mm -hmm. who did one of the greatest movies i've ever seen of marie antoinette which i feel like is pretty similar like young girl forced into this like crazy situation that she's been blamed for that just like yeah you cannot put the blame on like a 14 year old girl for a lot of things like it's just insane i i think it's like worth seeing on that merit too like directed and written by a woman like of a woman's perspective and totally that's an incredible thing yeah it was a great movie i was so happy to finally see it can't wait to watch it again already yeah it was good and 
I think what's his name? J- Jacob Eldori is that his mm-hmm. last, is that his name? He made a great Elvis. I feel like he looks more like Elvis than Austin Butler did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I I don't know. I like he kind of looks more like him. I feel like they had to like transform Austin Butler to look like Elvis. I feel yeah. like Jacob Elordi kind of already looked like him. He really capitalized on the like charming like. Eh. You, you get it you know it's like well mm-hmm. if i was a 13 year old and like you know a 20 something year old man was like talking to me that way of course you're 13 anyways Gosh. i would definitely recommend it but that is it that is all i wanted to make sure cool. we talked about but we can no i'm glad get you brought it up your ballerina yes okay so a few things i looked up the history of ballet because as i was reading this i was like this is so interesting. Like <laughs> this art form has been around forever and there's so many influences on it. And I was just like, what is the deal? So it actually like dates back to the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. It, like ballet is old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like the 15th, 17th century. Um, it was like the Italian Renaissance and it was a form of entertainment, of course. And they'd have like lavish royal spectacles and masquerades. Mm-hmm. And the term ballet comes from the Italian word ballet, which means to dance. So I don't know like how exact all those techniques are to like modern day ballet, probably pretty mm-hmm. different, but at least that's where it comes from. Next up, it kind of moved into like French influence in the 17th century and was very popular in the French court with like King Louis, who was like an avid dancer. And he actually founded the Academy of Royalty Dance. And so that started creating a lot more of those foundational techniques that are found within it and terminology. Then professional ballet companies actually were 18th century when they started happening, which is way earlier than I thought too. (laughs) And um, that was like largely influenced by the French still with Jean-Georges Novaire, who's like this French dancer and choreographer who like shaped ballet into a storytelling art form. So rather than just Mm. dancing, they were like performing a plot line. Um, 19th century is like the romantic era of ballet. And this was like emotional and narrative elements to the art form. Like there's ballets like La Silphide. I'm probably saying that wrong. (laughs) And Giselle, which had like themes of love, supernatural elements. And then this is kind of where it gets, we'll talk a lot more about like these two influences of ballet. Late 19th, early 20th century, it moved into a huge Russian influence. I kind of wondered, like, this is why I looked it up, because I was like, why is Russia and ballet, like, so intertwined? And I couldn't really find an exact answer, but basically, like, ballet was in Russia, and they created the Vaganova method, which was really prominent. And then two of the Russian ballet companies became famous. And it was Marlinsky and Bolshoi. Mm-hmm. And they developed iconic ballets like Swan Lake and the Nutcracker. Mm-hmm. So I think at that point, they were just like, okay, Russians do ballet, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. And it's kind like of stuck around. They do the big deal ones. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, I would say it's even still a thing that, like, Russia and ballet are very intertwined. And then what we'll be talking about is the 20th century innovations because there's choreographers like George Valentine, which we will... You'll hear that name again, as okay. well as Sergei de... Guys, I'm going to say these names wrong, and I'm so sorry. There are so many Russian names today. I cannot look them all up. So just bear with me. I'm very American 
at least I'm it's self-aware. All good. It's <laughs> yeah. all good. But Sergei Diaglev, I think is how I would say it. But he introduced like more of neoclassical avant-garde styles. And that brings on 20th century ballets like the Rite of Spring and Apollo, which well, kind of changed traditional ballet forever. Obviously, long history. Ballet has been around for a very long time. Luckily, we're just kind of focusing on that classical ballet and Russian influence and then the 20th century invasions. But Maria Talchief was a very prominent part of a lot of those innovations in the 20th century, which makes it really cool because yeah. I love it when people are part of like that turn of the art form. You know, it's just mm -hmm. really exciting. So Elizabeth Marie Talchief is actually her full name. And she also has an Osage family name. Am I mm. saying this right? Osage? The Osage? Mm-hmm. Okay. There's a new um, Leonardo DiCaprio movie about, like, the Osage. Killers of the Flower Moon. Yes. Mm -hmm. I, I read that. that a couple weeks ago. I Well, I haven't read the book, but I read that in the research of mm -hmm. the Osage Nation, and I was like, crazy. So yeah. It was a crazy movie. Yeah, I believe Good it. Movie. Anyway, that's the tribe she was born into. So her um, Native American name is Kihakasta TSA. I did look up the pronunciation of that. I was very shocked that they say TSA and not yeah. like, yeah. But she actually like basically was a dancer from birth. <laughs> cool. uh, she started formal lessons at age three, which wow. is very young. And mm -hmm. then her family kind of relocated based on her talent, which is an interesting thing to me that I feel like you'd have to have some kind of inkling that your child is way more Destined talented than the average, you know, it's like, yeah. how do you know? <laughs> yeah. And was able to go on to become a professional ballerina. A little bit about the Osage Nation. I'm not going to talk a ton about it. They're a very, very prominent tribe in mm -hmm. the United States. They had contact very early on with like people coming over from Europe and initially started trade relationships like really early and it worked pretty well for them. They also like signed a treaty really early on and allowed them to have like land holdings, even though it did push them into Oklahoma, which is I think where they still reside. But this whole thing, like in 1906, there was this thing called the Osage Allotment Act, which allowed them to like divide their reservation lands into individual allotments which is like a different thing from like communal land ownership that's pretty common. But this allowed them to become the wealthiest people per capita in the world because they discovered oil on yes. their land. And that's what the movie talks about <laughs> a lot. <laughs> yeah. If there's anything that Americans love, it's oil. <laughs> but yes. yeah, they discovered these vast oil reserves under the lands. It brought a lot of wealth to the tribe. They started the Osage Mineral Estate and it made them really prosperous. And then that's when the Osage Indian murder investigation happened because there was a series of murders in the 1920s where all of them were killed for their oil money. That actually resulted in the formation of the FBI. Yeah, it's like a weird <laughs> domino effect of like, you yeah, think that that's why, but mm -hmm. it's very strange. But anyway, it's just been a major thing, I think, in like United States culture and everything like the Osage. Osad tribe has played like a very, very prominent part in the history of our country. So very cool, but they continue to be a sovereign Native American tribe. They have strong cultural identity. There's like a major focus in their tribe on self-determination, 
which I love, and they just have like a really vibrant community. So that's what she was born into. She was born on January 24th, 1925 to Alexander Joseph Tallchief, who is a member of the Osage Nation, of course, and then his wife, Ruth, who is of Scottish-Irish descent. And she was known as Betty Marie to friends and family because of her name, Elizabeth Marie. And then her grand great-grandfather was a very big player in the oil situation in the Osage mm. Nation. His name was Peter Bickhart, and he actually uh, helped negotiate the whole oil situation <laughs> that ended up wow. enriching the whole Osage Nation. So her mm. father grew up very rich. Um, mm -hmm. It was said that he never actually worked a day in his life. And in her autobiography, she explained, as a young girl growing up on the Osage Reservation in Fairfax, Oklahoma, I felt my father owned the town. He had property everywhere. The local movie theater on Main Street and the pool hall opposite belonged to him. Our 10 room, a terracotta brick house stood high on a hill overlooking the reservation. Wow. So they were wealthy. And they were so wealthy, they actually would spend summers in Colorado Springs to escape the Oklahoma nice. heat. So they had a summer nice. home. Mm -hmm. Her life wasn't perfect, though. Obviously, no one's is. Um, her father was a binge drinker, and it led to a lot of arguments about money, because obviously that can eat up money really fast. She actually had three half-siblings as well because of her father's previous marriage. So it was Alexander, Francis, and Thomas. And Thomas actually would go on to play football for the University of Oklahoma and was drafted by the Pittsburgh Steelers. Wow. So very A athletically. Family. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> very, very talented. Her brother, Gerald, was a full sibling. He actually was injured in childhood when he was kicked in the head by a horse. Oh. Yeah, I feel like that's horrific. And I'm glad that it's not a common injury anymore, but I'm sure it happened yeah. pretty a lot. Yeah, frequently. He actually never regained normal cognitive function. So that's really tragic. And then she had a sister, Marjorie, which I love that name. And she was actually an accomplished ballerina in her own right. And mm -hmm. she was Maria's best friend. So they spent oh, a lot of cute. time together. One of the reasons they got into dance so early is because her mother had dreamed about becoming a performer, but her family was very poor when she was growing up. Mm. And so they couldn't afford dance or music lessons. And because mm. she married rich, <laughs> they had like an advantage that she had never had. And so she was determined that her daughters wouldn't suffer the same fate and that they would be allowed to be performers. Mm. So she enrolled both of them at summer ballet classes in Colorado Springs at age three. Cute. And yeah. then um, her and her other family members would perform at rodeos and local events. And she actually also studied piano and for a short time contemplated becoming a concert pianist. Cool. Yeah. So, so. Obviously very talented. Definitely. In 1930, a ballet teacher from Tulsa named Mrs. Sabin ended up visiting Fairfax and looking for students. And she ended up taking on Betty Marie and her sister Marjorie as students. This was not good. <laughs> yeah, she wrote in her, I'm going to be quoting her a lot, which is awesome. I love when they have an autobiography because we get mm -hmm. so much more context. But she said she was a wretched instructor who never taught the basics. And it's a miracle I wasn't permanently harmed. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Because obviously ballet is like very physically demanding. And when you're that young and doing it, you know, it's just you can you could mess things up really fast. Yeah. 
And one of the ways that she almost like permanently injured her is she put her on point at five. Oh, no. Even yeah. Know that's not good. No, you don't do that. Your feet are still developing. Like it is mm-hmm. extremely harmful. You're not supposed to be dancing point at five years old. So um, yeah, that was <laughs> really bad. At age five, though, she was also enrolled at the Sacred Heart Catholic School. And the teachers were so impressed that they allowed her to skip the first two grade levels. So she went right to third grade at five. And between piano, ballet, and schoolwork, she didn't have a lot of free time. But all the time that she did, she wandered around their big front yard and searched for arrowheads in the grass. So she loved the outdoors. Then they kind of made the child star move and the family moved to Los Angeles. Like I said, it blows my mind that parents do this. I feel like you have to have like some kind of inkling that your child is going to be famous. I don't know. I don't know how you uproot your entire life and move to a different state to pursue a career for your five-year-old. For your child. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Good for them. (laughs) Yeah, I don't get it. But I mean, it paid off. So that was 1933. They moved to Los Angeles. The intent was to get the children into Hollywood musicals. And one thing that was really funny that happened, they arrive in Los Angeles that same day, the mother asks a clerk at the local drugstore if he knew any good dance teachers. The clerk says, oh, Ernest Belcher. He's father of dancer March Champion. And she wrote, uh, Tall Chief wrote, an anonymous man in an unfamiliar town decided our fate with those few words. Because it's true. Yeah, they like signed her up with this teacher. (laughs) So Because on the one recommendation. (laughs) Yeah. Another thing that happened in California, they actually moved her back to the proper grade for her age. They put her in like an opportunity class for advanced learners, but she was like way ahead because she had been two grades ahead for a while. Mm -hmm. And so she like spent a lot of time just like wandering around the schoolyard by herself. Also, when they started classes, they did remove her from point. Thank heavens. So she said it definitely saved her from a major injury. There's no way she could continue to dance point that young and not have suffered something. Mm -hmm. She was really bored with school, obviously, because she was way ahead of where they were putting her. Mm -hmm. So she devoted herself to dance in Belcher's studio. He informed her that she'd been doing ballet all wrong. So she went back to square one. She also learned tap, Spanish dancing, and acrobatics. She found tumbling really difficult and quit the class eventually, but said that the skills did come to good use later in life. So like some of it paid off. And later the family did move to Beverly Hills where the schools offered better academics. So it was a little bit more challenging for her. However, she didn't go into detail, but she just described painful discrimination as being a major thing here. And during that time, she started spelling her last name as one word. So Tall Chief is actually two words, but she merged them together. I can imagine how bad the discrimination would be from other artists we've covered, but that's just really sad. I mean, she's a young girl. A child. Yeah. Yeah. Um, She continued to study piano, appearing as a guest soloist with a small sympathy orchestra throughout high school. Whoa. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Can you imagine Love like that. having a symphony <laughs> perform with you while you play piano? Not at all. At age 12, she began to work with Bronislava Ninjinska, I think, who is a renowned choreographer who had opened her own studio in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. as well as David 
Lynn Shine, who was a choreographer and former dancer, and mm-hmm. she loved Ninjinska. She said she was a personification of what ballet was all about. I looked at her and I knew this was what I wanted to do. Oh, that's nice. And Ninjinska was actually the sister of a legendary Russian dancer, Boslav Ninjinsky, and was a graduate of the Grand Ballet Academics of the Tsars. So very, very prominent Russian ballet family. Yeah, sounds fancy. Um, she had like a strong sense of discipline and belief that being a ballerina was a full-time task. So <laughs> Tal Chief said we didn't concentrate only for an hour and a half a day. We lived it. Ballet mm-hmm. kind of became their life. Like I mentioned, she was a major inspiration for her. Um, she said before Nanjinska, I liked ballet, but believed that I was destined to become a concert pianist. Now my goal was different. And Ninjinska saw the same thing in Tall Chief. And when she saw she was so serious, she began devoting more attention to her. When she was 15 years old, Ninjinska decided to stage three ballets in the Hollywood Bowl. Tall Chief expected a lead role, was, but was put in the Corpse de Ballet, which I think is like, like the... Ensemble. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she said she was just completely devastated. I was hurt and humiliated. I couldn't understand what's happening. Didn't she love me anymore? (laughs) Yeah, which would be hard. Um, But her mother gave her a pep talk. She rededicated herself and worked her way up to a lead part in Chopped in Concerto. Mm -hmm. And when the big day came, she actually ended up slipping during rehearsal and was really concerned about it. But Mm -hmm. Ninjutska dismissed it and said, happens to everyone. And they moved on, which I think is a very fair way to treat it. Mm-hmm. Um, she also received instruction from various teachers at this time when they came to visit Los Angeles and visit their ballet studio. She danced the pas de deux for Ada Broadbent. I'm sure famous name. Mia Slavenska took a shine to Tal Chief and arranged for her to audition for Serge Denman, who was the director of the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo. And cool. it said he was impressed, but nothing came of it. So she was just in the prominent ballet scene. She graduated from high school in 1942. At this point, she had given up on piano. She actually wanted to go to college, but her father was against it, responding, I've paid for your lessons all your life. Now it's time for you to find a job. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So she auditioned and won a part in presenting Lily Mars, which was an MGM musical, Judy Garland. Um, however, she said dancing in the movie wasn't gratifying, and so she decided to kind of move away from dancing in Hollywood films. I wonder if it's kind of like they had to do multiple takes, probably like wasn't the full dance. Yeah, like it was just like for one little scene. Yeah. It was like a background thing, I imagine. Maybe. Yeah, I'm like, I'm sure dancing in a movie is like very different from dancing in like a ballet. A concert, yeah, totally. Yeah. That summer, a family friend, Tatiana Rabo, these Russian names, man, Rabochinska, she asked if Tatif would like to go to New York with her. And because she was chaperoning, she went to New York at age 17. And while there, she looked up Serge Denham who was the one she had auditioned for with the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo before. A secretary told her that they didn't need any more dancers, and so she left crying. But a few days later, she got a call back, and they told her there was a response, a place for her after all. Denim apparently didn't remember her. I'm sure he got asked to watch so many children perform for him. So he didn't remember her, but she had something that he desperately needed, which was a passport. Um, (laughs) apparently a lot of his dancers were Russian immigrants 
and they didn't have passports but mm. the troop had like a canadian tour coming up and if you're going to canada you need a passport so they weren't yes. allowed to leave the country but because mm. she was a united states citizen and had a passport she yeah <laughs> she was able to go. do it and plus she was really talented that helped like they wouldn't have done it without that but no, you know no, no. of course she had a passport too and so she was taken on as an apprentice and performed in some ballets that it's like a gate parisine, I think. I'm probably saying it wrong. But after the Canadian tour, one of the dancers left due to pregnancy. And so she was offered her place and a $40 per week salary. Wow. So she was a full member of the company. And she found out that her former ballet teacher, Nijinska, had come to town to stage Chopton Concerto, which you'll remember is one of the first ballets she got a lead role in. Mm -hmm. And she was staging it with the ballet troupe she was now a part of the ballet russe de monte carlo so worked out very well um she cast tall chief as first ballerina which was natalie krasanvaska's understudy for the lead role and this is what i found interesting apparently in like this troupe and i'm sure many others the russian ballerinas had like a feud with american ballerinas because they thought they were inferior Oh. And because Tall Chief was promoted by Ninjinska and they like all thought it was surprising because she was like the newest member of the troupe, mm. she became the primary target for their animosity. Hmm. Yeah. Which, once That's again, she doesn't go yeah. into detail about. She's very classy about all the times she was mistreated. Good for her. Yeah. So I'm sure that that was not a great situation. Also, she fell in love. It was her first year at the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo, and she dated Alexander or Sasha Gudovich, who was the darling of the company. She said, for both of us, it was our first love. We saw each other every day, and I was convinced it was true love. Um, he moonlighted for extra money and bought her an engagement ring. And in the spring of 1944, he had a ch change of heart. Because life isn't fair. There's another young woman began pursuing him. And he backed out. No. Yeah. And she claimed saying her heart was broken, which I'm sure it was. They began to stage another ballet, though, Agnes de Mille's Rodeo or The Courting at Burnt Ranch. It was a uh, Balectic Americana is what they call it. An American ballet, obviously. It's yeah. named after a rodeo. Um, <laughs> and during this, uh, DeMille actually wanted her to change her name. Yeah, apparently it was like a common thing that had come up. Denim had previously suggested that she change her surname to a Russian sounding name, like Tachiva, mm -hmm. because okay. that was like, it was a common practice among ballerinas. And if because it's like russians were known for that ballet it makes sense that you're like haha yes my performance name is a name that just happens to sound russian so now <laughs> yeah. it like makes me seem like a more serious ballerina definitely and then it would lead to like i'm sure a lot less discrimination mm. but she refused which i love actually she was like tall chief was my name i was proud of it um mm -hmm. but they did convince her to like use a modified version of her middle name so you'll remember okay. her name was elizabeth marie tall chief yeah and she okay. went by betty marie and or elizabeth i'm sure but they decided to kind of change her name to maria tall chief and okay. it stayed that way for the remainder of her career and you'll remember in elementary school she switched tall chief from two words to one so mm -hmm. i often wonder i'm like we talk about a lot of artists who end up changing their names and i'm like if the world was more accepting do you think they just would have kept it as is 
Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Probably. I mean, like, <laughs> sometimes it is like an artistic choice, I'm sure. But I mean, yeah, other times I, in this, it's more of a necessity, maybe. So Yeah, because it's like, it kind of makes me sad to call her Maria Tall Chief. I'm like, I, you know, like she probably never yeah. would have changed it without pressure. But anyway, in her first two months at the Ballet Rust in Monte Carlo, she was in seven different ballets. Wow. As a part of the ensemble. And while she was in New York, she also took classes at the School of American Ballet. And when she was on tour, they didn't have official classes, but she would study the efforts of her colleagues. She really admired Alexandra Danilova, who is known for her work ethic and professionalism. She said that she would just practice whenever she could, and it earned her a really good reputation. She was just always doing bar and like giving it her all in recitals, like just doing mm -hmm. everything she could. The ballerina who she was the understudy for feuded with man management regularly, which raised the possibility of a promotion for Tall Chief. So she, the ballerina she was understanding for, she nearly quit the company late in 1942 and Talchiv was told she would go on in her place. But then she was persuaded to return, but it just like made it clear to Talchiv that she needed to be ready to perform the technically difficult role at any time. She was like, mm -hmm. she'll might quit one day and leave and then you're on, you know? Yeah. Like you don't have as much time to prepare as you would want. Yeah. It was like, it'll be a second notice and you'll be up there. Yeah. So she started like really <laughs> trying to get ready for that. However, very shortly after the ballerina argued with Denim and left the company <laughs> and she there said, unprepared, I was numb with terror, but she received very positive reviews. They actually wrote of her in the New York times. They had a dance critic. John Martin, who wrote, Tall Chief gave a stunning account of herself in Anunska's Chopped in Concerto. She has an easy brilliance that smacks of authority rather than bravara. Oh, I like And that. predicted that she would be a big star. Um, however, once the Chopped in Concerto was, concerto was complete, she did return back to the ensemble. So. Okay. But hey, she had her moments. A little bit back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. When she was on tour, she actually saw her parents in Los Angeles and they were really worried because with touring, there's like some poor nutrition, there was stress, and she'd lost a lot of weight and they said that she just looked really frail. And mm. her minor role in the Snow Maiden was like not what they were expecting, especially because mm -hmm. she had done so well. And so her mother actually tried to persuade her to quit ballet and return to the piano. <laughs> yeah. And um, she ended up changing her mind once they showed her the article that had been written about her that I just read and explained that he was like America's top dance critic and that she, you know, had gotten a raving review from him. And so she continued on and was able to get some bigger roles her second year. She was a soloist for La Labu Danube and got the lead in Ancient Russia, which was another Ninjinska ballet. Okay, so that was like her early career era, right? With the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo. They define this next part of her life as the Balanchine era. You remember when I talked about famous choreographers in 19th and 20th century ballet and I said, remember this name? It's George mm -hmm. Balanchine. So this kind of enters like a whole new part of her life. But what happened is in the spring of 1944, a choreographer, George Balanchine, was hired by Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo 
to work on a new production called Song of Norway. This basically changed both of their careers forever. She said she was drawn to him from the start. She said, when I saw what he had done, I was astonished. Everything seemed so simple yet perfect. An elegant ballet fell into place before my eyes. So she was just very mesmerized by him. At first, she was not sure if he was paying attention to her, but quickly found out he was. She was assigned a solo in Song of Norway, Norway, and on the night before the premiere, he also informed her that she would be Dan Lova's understudy. It seems to me from like reading all this that being an understudy was like a very prominent position, which makes sense. Like if they can't go yeah. on, it's you. It's you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was a really big deal. That ballet was a big success, and he was offered a contract for the rest of the season with the ballet troupe. So he was glad to get back into ballet because he'd spent years on Broadway and in Hollywood, and he accepted the offer. And sensing that her daughter was a star on the rise, her mother demanded a raise for her daughter. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, which I love, you know, mom going in fighting for her daughter. Yeah. Uh, Tall Chief was apparently mortified, which I imagine anyone would be if your parent has to come in to demand a raise. I but, would be also mortified. Right, yeah. But it yeah. worked. They gave into the demands and increased her salary of $10, so she made 50 per week instead. Okay. And she was promoted to a soloist. Um, Balanchine continued to just kind of adore her. Um, he gave her very important roles, featuring her in Apostle Troy with Mary Ellen, you know, other ballerinas. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. skip over a lot of names. It was like classical steps, but very unique. And she just loved it. She said it felt more like an exercise for pleasure and enjoyment than work. And Aww, even described it as being magical. Mm, that's magical. So yeah, yeah, that is she magical. Just, yeah, she just really loved the style and everything that he was doing. Shortly before Ballet Imperial was to open, Balanchine informed Tall Chief that she would be the second lead behind Moylan. She said, I nearly fainted. I couldn't get over it. Um, and as I'm sure you could kind of predict, as I was kind of mentioning how fond they were of each other, he was very attracted to her professionally okay. and personally. I was yeah. wondering if this was going here. <laughs> yeah. She actually didn't know that he felt that way. She said it never occurred to me that there was anything more than dancing on his mind. It would have been preposterous to think that there was anything personal. They kind of had like a more intimate relationship. It doesn't describe the depths of that but she said it was a complete shock when Balanchine asked her to marry him oh wow yeah so during the summer of 1945 he asked her to meet up with him after a Los Angeles performance he opened the car door for her when she got in he sat in silence for a moment before saying Maria I would like you to become my wife oh okay. yeah <laughs> And she said, I almost fell on my seat and was unable to respond, but eventually replied, but George, I'm not sure I love you. I feel I hardly know you. He answered that it did not matter. And if the marriage only lasted a few years, that it was all right with him. After a day to think it over, she accepted his proposal. Okay. Cool. Yeah. They had kind of like an interesting relationship. When she told her parents, her mom actually said, I've never heard anything more idiotic. What is wrong with you? Um, I, I don't know why. <laughs> I mean, I guess like if my 21 year old daughter mm -hmm. came to me and said, I'm marrying my dance teacher. And I'd be like, wait, were you in a relationship with him? Like, and, <laughs> yeah. like no, I, I would also be like, what are you doing? Yep. I can be sympathetic to that, I guess. He was That's 42 fair. as well. So I mean, like, All right, that, 
that adds to double her age like literally double her age yeah so i don't know valentine said he was unshaken by her objection and basically told tall chief like she'll come around and he like made all of these extravagant romantic gestures he was trying to convince her that the marriage was inevitable and she said i didn't need convincing i was falling in love her parents continued to oppose the marriage they actually didn't attend the ceremony okay um they also didn't have a traditional honeymoon and she said for both of us work was more important and that kind of tended to be a theme within their marriage passion and romance didn't play a big part in our married life we saved our emotions for the classroom so they were just very dedicated to ballet so i think it worked as a partnership she did describe him as a warm affectionate and loving husband and they remained good friends the marriage of course didn't last Super long. It it was annulled, actually, in 1952. Six years? Five, six years? Yeah, six years. And it ended because both parties were attracted to other people. So it was just kind of like a mutual decision, and they moved on. And it goes back to what he said. that He was like, even if it only lasts a few years, I'll be fine with me. So, I mean. He got what he wanted. Open communication. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Sounds good to me. But they did continue to work together, obviously, professionally. They were part of the same ballet troupe, and there was never any conflict over it. Like, it seems like it was just very mutual. They had a lot of respect for each other. Like she said, passion and romance didn't play a big part. So they were just, like, very good So when it ended, it was probably just like, yeah, same, not dramatic, just whatever. Yeah, and they just Mm, kind of moved on. So, yeah, one night on tour in 1945, so this is while they were married, she was doing her bar when he remarked, if only you would learn how to do it better, you wouldn't have to learn anything else. And (laughs) it was kind of his way of saying, like, you need to start all over. It was vadament tendu, I think is what he was telling her. Apparently, it's the most basic ballet exercise there is. And so she kind of responded that she wanted to die. But she had seen the difference between like Mary Ellen, who was his pupil, like her dancing Mm. and and her own. And so she Mm -hmm. knew he was right. So she like he became like her tutor in it. And she like learned how to elongate her neck, legs and neck to hold her chest high, to keep her back straight, her feet arched and kind of change her form in order Mm. she said her body seemed to be going through a metamorphosis and she was able to relearn basic exercises and transform her greatness of turnout into a strength and she said it also like helped transform her from a teenage girl into a young woman yeah it like really changed her dancing and she rose to the rank of featured soloist she got more important roles and was cast as the role of coquette and night shadow which is the ballet's most technically challenging role and that was after Danilova had selected the other female lead for herself. So, I mean, it must have worked, the extra training. I'm sure, like, with kind of her education of we talked about that really horrible teacher and then kind of, like, mismatched teachers throughout later. Like, her ballet mm-hmm. technique maybe wasn't as good as someone who had had, like, a good teacher the whole time. From the beginning, yeah. Yeah. So that really helped. The next kind of phase of her life is the New York City Ballet. So in 1946, Balanchine joined with arts patron Lincoln Kirsten to establish the Ballet Society, which was the beginning of the New York City Ballet, which is still around. Very prominent yeah. institution. I was just going to say. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tall Chief had six months remaining on her contract with the Ballet Roost in Monte Carlo. So she stayed with the company. And then when it was over, she joined Balanchine, who was in France as a guest choreographer at the Paris Opera Ballet. He had been called upon to save the troupe, <laughs> but everyone there didn't really appreciate the fact that he was there. And 
then there was like this whole thing because obviously this is kind of around the time of world war ii there was some accusations of one of the i don't think it was him but like some of the people involved in the ballet of supporting the nazis and (laughs) then it led to this like vocal campaign to get rid of him and uh, i don't know anyway it was a whole situation. She arrived in the middle of that, <laughs> was put to work immediately with roles in a bunch of ballets. I mentioned Apollo earlier. That was one mm-hmm. of them. Uh, a dancer pulled out of Apollo shortly before opening night, which forced her to learn a more difficult role on short notice. And opening night was actually a huge success. The mm-hmm. French press were very fascinated by Tall Chief and uh, especially her background. The article like listed some of the headlines I'm not going to read them word for word. They threw in some slurs, but Ah. (laughs) basically they're like Native American slur dances at the opera for the King of Sweden. And that was a front page headline. And then another one was the daughter of the great Indian chief dances at the opera. Um, So that was the hyperfixation. Yeah. They were very fascinated. They're like, Oh, this Native American woman is dancing ballet. What a, Mm -hmm. a strange thing. But I mean, it like kind of worked for her. Um, She said that like the colleagues all hated her, but the French audiences loved her. And so, I mean, like if the audience loves you, it does end up helping your career regardless of the fact that they were all racist. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So she spent six months in Paris and then due to like everything that was happening over there, they ended up returning to New York. But she was the first American to perform with the Paris Opera Ballet. Cool. So quite the accomplishment. Um, When they returned to the States, she became one of the first stars and the first prima ballerina of the New York City Ballet, which I love. Can you imagine the first prima ballerina of the New York City Ballet? Yeah. I feel like that means more than it did then. But like. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like ballet isn't as of a mainstream art form as I'm assuming it was back in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. So that checks out. That's cool. Yeah, definitely. And Valentine is said to have revolutionized ballet by creating roles that demanded athleticism, speed, and aggressive dancing like nothing before. And of course, she was very well suited to this vision. She said, I always thought Valentine was more of a musician, even than a choreographer, and perhaps that's why he and I connected. He Mm. actually go on to create many roles specifically for her, including the lead of, we talked about this ballet when we talked about, what's her name? Misty Copeland? Yes. Thank you. I was Mm -hmm. like, starts with an M. Misty Copeland, Firebird. Oh, cool. Yeah, one of the valleys that Misty Copeland performed in. This was a role that was created specifically for her, the lead of Firebird in 1949. Mm-hmm. Of her Firebird debut, they wrote, Maria Talchief made an electrifying appearance, emerging as the nearest approximation to a prima ballerina that we had yet enjoyed. What a, what a compliment. Yes. Yeah, another critic actually wrote that she was asked to do everything except spin on her head, and she does it with complete and incomparable brilliance. Ooh, I yes. love that. So they were very amazed. He did kind of ask for a lot more technical difficulties in his roles and like that athleticism that I think fits Misty Copeland very well, too. Mm-hmm. So it worked really well for Maria Talchief. Another little romance um, in 1952, so this is around the same time, her other marriage was ending, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she married Almorza Nadaboff, who was a pilot for a private charter airline. Don't know a whole lot about the relationship. They did divorce two years later. In 1955, she met Chicago businessman Henry D. He went by Buzz. 
Passion Jr. Um, she said he was very happy, outgoing, and knew nothing about the ballet, which was very refreshing. I'm sure after <laughs> being married to literally her choreographer, that would be. Yeah. yeah, I can see that. They married the following June and honeymooned with the ballet tour of Europe. So, you know, she just took him with her. Mm -hmm. And then um, with him, she actually had her only child, Elise Maria Passion, who was born in 1959. And she would go on to become the award-winning poet and executive director of the Poetry Society of America. Wow, a very accomplished family. Definitely. With this marriage, she also had a stepdaughter, Margaret Wright. So in a lot of things, it will say that she had two children. She did, Mm -hmm. but, you know, she only gave birth. technically. Yeah. Yeah to one so but she had two daughters the couple remained together even through he ended up in jail for tax evasion um (laughs) chicago business you know (laughs) yeah whatever and but they did remain together until he passed away in 2004 so wow yeah with her popularity on the rise you know like she's getting these wonderful articles written about her everything is happening um she was asked to perform as many as eight times a week which i don't think sounds ethical yeah, it's probably a lot. That's right? That's much being overworked, I'm sure. But how much do Broadway performers perform in a week? Because do they do a matinee and an evening show, or do they, like, switch off with the understudies? I started thinking I about know. it, and I was like, is that a common thing? Because I don't think eight times sounds good. Most Broadway shows perform six days a week with eight performances total per week. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I feel like that probably is it's what they standard. do. I don't mm-hmm. think it sounds ethical. I feel like they get a day off, basically. That's insane to me. I feel like it's so physically demanding. I'm like, that should not be allowed. Like, yeah. Anyway, Gotta I call for reform. Do graces. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's insane. Anyway, um, in 1954, she was given the role of the Sugar Plum Fairy, which was actually in Blanchine's newly reworked version of the Nutcracker, which, get this, was then an obscure ballet. Wow, that is actually crazy, as it's literally the most <laughs> famous ballet now. Yes. Um, they said that her performance of the role helped transform the work into an annual Christmas classic and the industry's wow. most reliable box office draw. Well, there Isn't we that go. insane? Um, yeah. There is a critic who wrote, Maria Tallchief as the Sugar Plum Fairy is herself a creature of magic, dancing the seemingly impossible with the effortless beauty of movement, electrifying us with her brilliance, enchanting us with her radiance of being. Does she have any equals anywhere inside or outside of fairyland? While watching her in the Nutcracker, one is tempted to doubt it. Wow. Yes. That's, yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So like... The Nutcracker is such a big deal because of her performance. Just so cool. I love yeah, that. Mm-hmm. Probably most famous ballet ever. Um, other notable roles included the Swan Queen in his version of Swan Lake. Okay. Once again, very, mm-hmm. very prominent now. Um, mm-hmm. Eurydice and Orpheus. She created the lead role of Prodigal Son, Jones Beach a la Francais, and plotless works such as Sylvia Pas de Pew. Dip two and a bunch of others. I don't know. If you want to look them up, you can. Um, her fiery athletic performances helped establish Valentine as the heir's most prominent and influential choreographer. So, Dang. but it was her they that was doing it. In tandem, helped mm-hmm. each other grow. One thing I will say on, like, I found a lot of obituaries for her, articles about her, and everything, like, comments that she was Valentine's muse. And obviously, Mm. like, that's one of the reasons our podcast name is the name it is. Um, Because, like, 
I don't look at them as like she was the inspiration and he was the director. I think it was definitely a partnership. Like he did train her to be able to do the parts that he asked yeah. of her. But like he had to have seen the potential within her and she was like so hardworking and like loved it so much that she was able to. Like I'm like it was still her body that had to accomplish these feats, you know? Like Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so it it kind of like grated my gears a little bit that they kept referring to her as the muse because it was like, come on, like so much more than Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Obviously. Yeah. That's like the whole premise of our podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, she remained with the New York City Ballet until February of 1960 and also took time off to work with other companies. She made guest appearances with the Chicago Opera Ballet, the San Francisco Ballet, the Royal Danish Ballet, the Hamburg Ballet, among many others. Those are very all very prominent ballets. Um, working for the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo in 1954 to 55, she was actually paid $2,000 a week, which was the highest salary ever paid to a dancer at the time. Whew. Yeah. That's a lot of money, I think. That'd um, be a good amount of money right now. So Yeah, I know. $2,000 a week, I'll take it. Um, <laughs> it's more than I make right now. <laughs> yeah. In 1958, she created the lead in Valentine's Gonad Symphony before taking leave of absence to have her child. So very, very good prominent career. One thing that she did, she actually took on like a protege. I'll mention that a little earlier, but one quote that I loved is that her protege said that she was very direct in expressing her opinion and never minced words. It said Mm -hmm. it gave her the illusion of being a diva, but it was really a keen sense of honesty. Love that. Yeah. So I really love that. I think it says a lot about her character. She left the New York City Ballet, joined the American Ballet Theater, first as a guest dancer and then as their prima ballerina. She was recognized, of course, very prominently for her role and was the first American dancer to perform at Moscow's famed Bolshoi Theater which, you know, quite the honor. She also started taking on dramatic roles like Bridget Kohlberg's Miss Julie and Lady from the Sea, as well as the melancholy heroine of Anthony Tudor's Georgian Oxlilos. And she performed on TV shows as well, including The Ed Sullivan Show, and then also did a movie musical, Million Dollar Mermaid, portraying Anna Pavlova. And then in 1962, this very prominent ballerina, Rudolf Nureve, um, chose her to be his partner for the American debut, which was broadcast on national television. Cool. On the urging of Ballantyne, so her ex-husband at this point, she relocated to Germany and became the lead dancer of the Hamburg Ballet for a short time. Um, oh. She performed in the title role of Peter Van Dyke's Cinderella, which is very cool, and then ended up retiring from dancing because she didn't want to dance beyond her prime, which I think is smart. I mean, you lead to a lot of injuries, yeah. I think, if you start to push yourself too much. Totally. You want to end on a high note. <laughs> Yes. So, I mean, throughout her career, though, it was a very, very prominent career. She danced throughout Europe, South America, Japan, Russia, appearances with several orchestras. Like, she was very well known for her work as a ballerina. She retired from dancing, moved to Chicago, where her husband was, and served as the director of ballet for the Lyric Opera of Chicago. She founded Mm -hmm. the Lyric Opera's Ballet School, where she taught the Ballantine technique. And explaining her teaching philosophy, she wrote, new ideas are essential, but we must retain respect for the art of ballet. And that means the artist too, or else it is no longer 
an art form. Love that. Yeah. Alongside her sister, Marjorie, they actually founded the Chicago City Ballet, and she served as the co-artistic director until its demise in 1987. Despite the company failing, the Chicago Tribune actually called her a force in the history of Chicago dance and said that she increased the popularity of dance in the city. She also was featured in a documentary film, Dancing for Mr. B, and was the artistic advisor to Von Hedyk's Chicago Festival Ballet until she died. Before we talk about her passing away, she, her style, like I mentioned, was like very, very well known, not just like because of her teacher and his prominence, but like because of her. Mm -hmm. She was known for dazzling audiences with her speed, energy, and fire. She was said to exhibit both electrifying passion and great technical ability. She combined precise footwork with athleticism. Um, They often said when you watch Tall Chief on a video, you see that aside from the technical polish, there is a burning passion she brought to dancing. In her interpretation of Firebird, she was consumed both inside and out. She was not just a great dancer, but a real artist, a true interpreter who brought her personality to bear on the dancing. Mm -hmm. They also said she was like a master of what they call like the perfect pause. So it was like this moment, like brief pause of stillness that allowed them to keep pace with the choreography if they were watching the ballet, which that has got to be like a whole thing that would take quite a lot to figure that out. The director of the Lyric Opera of Chicago actually said as well that she was a consummate professional. She realized who and what she was, but she didn't flaunt it. She was unpretentious. A fellow dancer agreed, saying she didn't seem to be too frightened on the stage. Like some of the others, she had an iron will inside. She phrased her curls and extensions as delicately or as strongly as the music itself. So, I mean, just like a true artist, you can tell from everything you read, like she just loved ballet and she performed it so beautifully and like everyone could just see it. I kind of hate the way she died because not only does it sound painful, it just sounds like a horrible thing to happen to a dancer. In 2012, she broke her hip. What would it would just be so frustrating, oh, no. like having such an athletic, capable body your entire life, and then you break your hip. It would just, yeah, you know, like that would just suck. So she actually ended up dying only a year later from complications stemming from the injury. Like that's not really something that you recover very yeah. easily from. Um, so that was in. 2013 when she passed away so really not that long ago actually yeah and she had of course like a huge legacy they gave her a dance magazine award she was considered america's first major prima ballerina and the first native american to hold the rank she remained closely tied to the osage history until her death and often spoke out against stereotypes and misconceptions about native americans on a lot of occasions which is incredible Mm -hmm. she was involved with the america for indian opportunity and was a director of the Indian Council Fire Achievement Award. She and her sister Marjorie are actually counted as two of a group of five Native American ballet dancers from Oklahoma born in the 1920s. I found this at the end and I was like, why didn't this come up sooner? Apparently, like, there was this group, like I said, of five ballerinas that were born in Oklahoma in the 1920s and all went on to become prominent ballet dancers. And they were all Native Americans. And so they call them, they call them the five moons. So they achieve international recognition during the 20th century. The other women are Mira Yvonne Chateau, Rosella Hightower, 
Marceline Larkin, and then, of course, Maria and her sister, Marjorie Tallchief. So I was like, oh, we could have done, like, a whole episode on them, but, like, they all have really long, important histories, so it would have been really hard to condense that. But, like, there are all of these artistic tributes across Oklahoma for these five women because of, like, their huge prominence in ballet. There's, Mm -hmm. like, apparently this bronze sculpture that's installed in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and it has all five of the ballerinas on it. Another one is there's this mural called Flight of Spirit, and it has the five women depicted on it, and that's where the dance festivals are held in their mm-hmm. honor. So it's just really cool and like kind of crazy that like yeah. five ball- ballerinas from Oklahoma like went on to become internationally prominent, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, what are the I odds like of that? She was called one of the most brilliant American ballerinas of the 20th century and paved the way for dancers who are not a part of the traditional mold of ballet, crucial in breaking this stigma. And uh, upon her death, they wrote, when you thought of Russian ballet, it was Yolovana. With English ballet, it was Fontaine. For American ballet, it was Tallchief. She was the grand in the grandest way. Time Mm -hmm. magazine remarked, of all the ballerinas in the last century, few achieved Maria Tallchief's artistry a kind of conscious dreaming, a reverie with a backbone. Ah, wow. I love how complimentary I know. Is. Like, that's amazing. And just to end it, her own words on her own career, she said, I was in the middle of magic in the presence of genius, and thank God I knew it. Oh, I love that. That's amazing. Yes. So just, like, incredible. I literally can't get over her career and, like, everything that she accomplished especially with like Mm -hmm. so much going against her and then to be able to rise up to become like an international sensation she's just incredible that is incredible I I love that quote like and I'm sure it's like such a blessing to like be a part of such like an amazing movement and like also like what a blessing to be able to recognize it in that moment and like really relish in that magic and like doing what you love like yeah that that is amazing and I'm, I'm glad she was able to recognize that It's just incredible. Of Mm -hmm. course, like her autobiography, I couldn't find the title, but I'll post it if I can find it. And then she also, oh, it's just called Maria Tallchief, America's Prima Ballerina. There you go. Oh, okay. (laughs) There's obviously multiple biographies as well. And then they also had a documentary titled Maria Tallchief that aired on PBS between 2007 Mm. and 2010. I think she's definitely like a person that if this intrigued you at all, like definitely go learn more. It seems like there's a lot of resources and there's videos of her dancing online. Like, Mm. like if this interests you at all, like definitely, definitely like go look at more because there's so much like wealth of information for a woman that I'd never heard of before which is insane yeah which is even weirder because I did that whole episode on Misty Copeland and I don't remember Maria Tallchief yeah because you gave a whole I mean I guess it wasn't the full history of ballet as much as you did on this one but like still yeah yeah especially when it's like she was the first person who did that dance like Misty Copeland famously did yeah I know that she wasn't brought up kind of crazy but i mean that happens all the time so yeah very true unfortunately (laughs) time and time again oh gosh anyway it's just incredible and i of course will be posting a lot of the photography of her Mm. dancing on the instagram this week yeah very 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 talented woman oh i can't wait and now yeah i just want to go look up videos after of her dancing. i know i'm so excited that's maria tall chief 
Amazing. Well, thank you for sharing. So happy to always learn more about another, you know, another woman added to the roster. I know. Um, I love it. And if you are new here, this is what we do every week. We tell the stories of forgotten women or we discuss aspects of women in the arts. So like us, subscribe to us. That's the word. Just like us. Please like us. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, rate and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. And our Instagram is morethanamuse.podcast, where we always provide the visual references for what we talk about on the podcast. So come say hi. And we'd love to have you. Definitely would. And we'll do a topic episode next week. So definitely Mm -hmm. come back for that. And I'm just excited to finish out the year. It feels so bittersweet when we near the end of this. Only two more months. Of course, it will continue on into January. But yeah, we're not going anywhere. But it does feel, you know, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, oh, we're nearing the end of something for sure. Definitely. Cool. We'll see you next week. Bye.